In a country where it's all about getting more stuff, what happens when the shelves are suddenly empty and that there's a supply chain break? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. When the very identity of a culture is on consuming more and more stuff, it's a big shock to the otherwise well-functioning system when suddenly the shelves are empty. All of a sudden, there's a widespread awareness that the supply chain is inexplicably broken. How is this possible? America's post-war bragging rights were to compare our brimming cornucopia of stuff with that of images of the poor people in the Soviet Union who had to wait for hours for stuff that might not even be there and is likely of inferior quality. We were better than that. In the February special edition of the American Prospect magazine, executive editor David Dayan writes that capitalism meant shortages could never happen. Quote, supply would always rise to meet demand as long as there's money to be made. Capitalism has your every desire covered, he said. His remarkably explanatory article is titled, How We Broke the Supply Chain. And he explains that shortages and price hikes were brought to life through bad public policy, coupled with decades of corporate greed. That's not the theory that most people are buying into. That understanding is not yet well known. We blame all kinds of other things. But in order to address the challenge, it is crucial that Americans gain this understanding. David Dayan, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you for having me on. David Dayan is the Prospect's executive editor. His work has appeared in The Intercept, The New Republic, Huffington Post, The Washington Post, The LA Times, and more. His most recent book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. Boy, that sounds interesting. Well, assuming the broken supply chain and sudden random shortages of so many things is something we Americans are determined to fix, unless we get to the root of it, if we point fingers of blame inaccurately, as we so often do, the present morass involving local retailers, shipping companies, fiscal policy, as well as suddenly impoverished working people, democracy itself will continue to be less and less secure. And the people in power in Washington and the financial system are, of course, loath to look at real solutions. At the American Prospect, how did you decide to do a special issue on this topic now? Well, uh, we just thought that a story wasn't being told about inflation. Inflation is obviously the biggest uh, uh, driver of, of economic discussion right now. Uh, we have the highest inflation in 40 years, and people are making, you know, very critical decisions 
based on what they believe is causing that inflation to go up. Uh, from one side, they're saying uh, the reason for inflation is the uh, increase in fiscal spending. And what we have to do is raise interest rates and essentially artificially bring down demand, which will pe put people out of work uh, in order to get back in balance, um, you know, cool down the economy. Uh, the, our, our belief was that the story that wasn't being told was that the, the supply issues right now that we are seeing are the inevitable byproduct of about 50 years mm. of bad policy that uh, led to this inflexibility, this brittleness in the supply chain. And the only way to really fix that is to reverse those policies. And what are those policies? Well, it's rampant outsourcing and offshoring, which puts pressure on the supply chain because you have to ship everything, every good from long distances. Uh, it's monopolization of key inputs of the supply chain. There are only three cartels that control global shipping. There are four railroads that pretty much move freight along to handle the east coast uh, or the eastern united states and to handle the west um and there's monopolies in in you know various uh, inputs of retail and production that that centralize things and 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 make things a little more brittle and open to attack um there is uh deregulation that we see at every level of the supply chain so uh, the reason why uh trucking is in crisis is not because we have a lack of truckers, but because we have a lack of good jobs. And uh, truckers, you know, uh, by for good reason, don't want to sit at the ports and wait uh, forever and ever uh, to uh, without being paid right. because of their the nature of their pay scale um, to to you know pick up goods. Uh, and all of this is sort of governed by a philosophy driven by investors on wall street that says you need to lower labor costs to the bone you need to only bring over inventory when you need it in other words there's this thing called mm -hmm. just in time logistics where uh you, you have lean inventories you don't have any kind of reserve capacity no ability to surge when 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 things you know demand increases um and so you put all that together and you've added this risk into the supply chain so that even if there's a slight increase in demand when more people want goods, the, the system can't handle it. It, it, just, it just blows up. And that's what we've seen over the last two years. Some people say, well, we've shifted, uh, you know, people are buying more goods because they're not going to restaurants and bars as much. And so services have gone down and goods have gone up. And this is just a situation where we, we just, you know, uh, uh, there, there's, there's too much and the system can't handle it. Mm. Well, that, that process began two years ago, right? When the pandemic started, the fact that our supply chain can't adjust to, to two years of that, even after the goods uh, uh, consumption, it, it peaked a year ago and has been going down for the last year, that shows that there's something wrong with this engineering. Well, and, and, and in my view, it's these bad policies that are to blame. 
And as we mentioned right in the beginning, you know, that was other countries. I, you know, one of the, in in the fifties, you knew that that the old Soviet Union, there was concentrated and centralized economic control and decision making. There was not real competition. And as you say, uh, there's more concentration of power now. There's less competition, really. And uh, Golly gee, it seems sort of like uh, what we saw in the old Soviet Union. There's not a lot of it. People have to wait a long time, and it's not necessarily great stuff. And so it's just sort of... Uh, yeah, we used to call it the bread line. Right. We used to hear about bread lines in the Soviet Union. There'd be a lot of pictures uh, on U.S. media in particular showing what a bad place it was right. <laughs> to live in the Soviet Union uh, because they were you know, sitting around for hours waiting for bread. And we're not supposed to have that in a capitalist society. The big book of capitalism says any demand will there will be supply available to meet that demand. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And and we're seeing that because of the way we set up our system, that's not true anymore. And so we have to get to the bottom of how do we fix that? Hmm. That's it's always a, a heavy lift. It, it, and it's and it's happening here. And you know, unlike other economic challenges in recent history, this one is felt by pretty much everyone. I personally speaking, I know I was awaiting a part and was number forty sixth on a list. Mm. <laughs> After a few months, yeah, it finally arrived. But this kind of thing never happened to me before. What are some examples of upfront effects of the broken supply chain on everyday working people? Well, uh, there there are two main things, right? There's shortages and there is goods inflation, because if you can't get that part right away, what does the company do? They say, well, if we raise the price, there'll be less people who want this part. And and then we'll have just enough people, uh, just enough parts to supply uh, the demand. And so we're seeing this right now in the statistics, inflation year over year up seven and a half percent. A lot of that is because of that dynamic and and these delays uh, and uh, and also the increase in input costs. So so the shipping companies, for example, ocean shipping companies mm -hmm. made more in profits in 2021 than they did in the years 2010 to 2020 combined. Wow. And that money, that increase in money goes into everything we buy, right? Because the money gets, you know, the, 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 the increased costs get passed on to customers. But there's another dynamic happening here as well. And that is that, you know, pricing is really a choice. It's a choice that companies make uh, of, of how much they're going to sell their goods for and, and, and take their profit. And what we're seeing in the economy is not just an increase in prices and not just an increase in profits, which could be because we have more demand. So they're selling more goods and there's more profit to be made on each piece. But we're seeing an increase in profit margins. And what that means is that every individual good that's being sold, companies are making more off of that. So how could that be? They're supposed to have increased costs of getting goods produced and shipped and distributed to people, why are they making more off of every good? Well, the truth is, is that inflation is being used as something of an excuse to increase prices. And, and this is not hidden. 
If you listen to earnings calls, which is where companies talk to their investors about what they're doing, they're practically boasting about the fact that we're increasing prices on the consumer. We are uh, we have pricing power. And what that means is that uh, uh, people want our goods and there's not a lot of competition for them. And so we can raise the price to our heart's content because people want to, you know, people are going to have to buy from us anyway. Mm. So that's another interesting facet of this is that the inflation that we're seeing because of this, this, these breakdowns in the supply chain is causing opportunistic price increases from uh, very concentrated firms all across the economy. Wow. Sure. Nothing like economic justice. Uh-huh. Wow. And, you know, the basic law, obviously, underpinning capitalism is supply and demand. And when demand remains strong, but supply is not, this obviously affects, affects inflation, which politically is a big pain for President Biden. Now, most yeah, people absolutely. have no understanding of the factors that cause inflation, and that can cause, I think, misdirected political anger. Uh, talk about that, if you would, please. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the Biden administration, this is a, a huge political problem. If you look over history, inflation is always a, a driver of political discontent. So how do they talk about this issue? Uh, they could they could say, oh, but if you pass our policies, then everything will be better because they'll, they'll reduce inflation. Well, that's not entirely true. The problem, the dilemma for the Biden administration is these are long-term factors that, that, that diminish supply and they require long-term solutions, but they have a short-term political imperative because the next election is right around the corner. So uh, it's, it's hard to say uh, what they're going to be able to do in the short term. One thing they can do is address what I just talked about, which is, you know, this, this uh, opportunistic inflation arising out of greed. There are some uh, uh, organizations, progressive groups that have said, this is what you need to address. Uh, the, the, this is, this is, and, and even talking about this and, and investigating it might lead to that opportunity turning into a risk for these companies of raising prices so much that the profits go haywire. Um, so, and that might bring, you know, have them bring down those price increases. So I, I think, I think there are some, some rhetorical opportunities for the Biden administration, but ultimately the answers lie in, in long-term structural change. And of course, both parties uh, are so uh, addicted to the supply of cash, campaign cash, from the uh, these entities that are right. making so much money. So right. they're hardly about to disturb that structure. And yet, it somehow it needs to be. Now, what what about the role of the pandemic in breaking the supply chain? How did, as you say, the pandemic expose this hidden risk, like a right. domino bringing down a system primed to topple? Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing here, because a lot of people say, oh, this is the pandemic. And uh, once once the pandemic clears, we're not going to have this problem anymore and the supply chain will work as normal. Um, we We actually saw previews of what could happen at several points throughout the past, you know, 10, 20 years. One was Superstorm Sandy, for example, it, when it when it hit New York and the East Coast. 
there was a moment there where New York City was was about two days away from lacking a stable food supply mm. um, uh, because it it's not only things like a pandemic that can cause these supply disruptions because they are global because we have this global system. Uh, any kind of disruption can ripple out across the globe and cause these 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 slowdowns. Uh, for example, the what we're seeing right now is a, a shortage in semiconductors. Uh, these are the chips that go into a whole bunch of different electronics and a lot of vehicles. And we're seeing a lot of uh, inflation in those areas and delays because there there aren't enough chips. So one of the reasons for this is that there was a fire at a semiconductor plant in Japan uh, about a, a couple years ago, and that reduced the amount of available supply. Then just, just this year, at the beginning of the year, there was another fire in a plant in Berlin that makes the machines that make semiconductors. So uh, you, you see that when you, when you don't have uh, redundancy in your supply chain. When you have it, it's concentrated. Only a few places make these things. If you have a disruption in one of those plants, it's it, there's going to be a, a major global problem. And so the pandemic was a catalyst, but it was not a cause mm. of this. Mm -hmm. It was a catalyst. And there are other catalysts out there. Extreme weather events, uh, freak accidents like a fire or an earthquake, po uh, political unrest. I mean, what did we see from the, the, the freedom convoys shutting down the Ambassador Bridge between Ontario and Detroit? And that, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in goods, including car parts, weren't able to get over the bridge. So that's a supply disruption. Uh, all of these things, to me, they show the need for creating additional capacity, uh, onshoring goods so that we're not reliant on things happening in other countries, having redundancy in our supply chain, uh, uh, having have warehousing some reserves for our supply chain, and 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 you know doing the kinds of things that an engineer would do to make sure a system ran smoothly. Hmm. An engineer, boy, I'll t <laughs> it's amazing how often I just I personally see uh, the need for engineers uh, to uh, just apply what they know to organizational problems and how little that's done. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a big issue, the uh, supply chain uh, broken uh, our guest today is David Dan, who's uh, executive editor of Prospect magazine, and uh, his uh, article is titled How We Broke the Supply Chain is the focus of the new issue of the American Prospect. And of course, we prefer, as always, to sweep things under the rug and see the supply chain problem as a mere momentary kink, which, eh, if we just relax, it'll work itself out. What's wrong with this understanding? What harm can come from believing that well as i said uh the, to believe that is to believe that only the pandemic can be the triggering event that causes supply disruptions and breakdowns and and really anything can i mean a good example uh, i'll again go back to semiconductors conductors the the leading facility 
for semiconductors, a leading company that produces a large segment of our, our global semiconductor output is called Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC. They are situated, as the name implies, in Taiwan, which is a contested island that China believes it has a claim onto, and the, the Taiwanese believe they do not. So if, if unrest breaks out there, if, if war, God forbid, breaks out in, in, uh, in Taiwan, all of a sudden, the, the output of TSMC, uh, of their, their semiconductor chips, is going to be severely diminished. And that is going to mean that practically every factory producing electronics, producing vehicles, producing anything that has a computerized function within it uh, is, is going to be out of luck. I, I mean, the, the, so that's a huge risk sure. for our economy. And, uh, and, and, and that's just one example. I mean, uh, we saw unrest earlier politically in, this year in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan happens to be one of the main sources of uranium in the world. And uranium supplies went you know, down significantly during that moment when there seemed to be a coup in that country. Uh, these things can happen over and over again, and uh, it's it's really, really dangerous. Yeah, it, it really is, for sure. And once again, the concentration and centralization of power and wealth, you know, it's been going on for a really long time, and it's rather the mm -hmm. antithesis of democracy. And I've yeah, we need to have more, in my opinion, economic democracy. And, and you know, planning is, ooh, is, you know, it may sound communistic, but I think, uh, you know, looking at things and not just turning over all decision-making to the sources of concentrated power, not Absolutely. necessarily a good Absolutely. Thing. It's called an industrial policy, and we had one in this country uh, uh, not too long ago, and, and we gave it up. We essentially sold off our system of commerce to private corporations who have their own self-interest in mind. And uh, this is the result. They, they build a supply chain and they build a system of commerce for their own profits rather than for resiliency or uh, efficient or, 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 you know, reliably getting goods to people. And, uh, and we're seeing the effects of that and, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't stand for it. I would tend to agree, but people, I don't know, they don't want to pay attention. They'd rather look at uh, uh, anything other than that. And it's remarkable how the, the powers that be have, have gotten so many people to not pay attention to these very deep issues because it's hard. And, you know, as America's founders said, citizenship it means participating. It means paying attention. Right. You can't self-govern if you don't know what the heck you're doing. And... No doubt, I would be shocked if you hadn't seen the amazing movie, Don't Look Up, in, mm -hmm. which, in which the powerful, eccentric billionaire uh, explains that the rare resources on the incoming comet will not only bring him unimagined fortune, but he promises it will end hunger and solve every economic problem for America. Once again trickle down. And as you, you write, the reality we prefer not to see is that 
Bad public policy coupled with decades of corporate greed, we spent a half century allowing business executives and financiers to take control of our supply chain enabled by leaders in both parties. They all hailed the transformation, cheering the advances of globalization, the efficient network that would free us from want. Right. End of your quote. Trickle down as uh, one of my heroes, Rocky, said to Bullwinkle, that trick <laughs> never works. <laughs> globalization. Elected officials from both parties have been so enthusiastic about globalization. There's a few people on the kind of libertarian right that are starting to make some noise about that, and a few on the left as well. How is it, mm -hmm. at its essence, unable to handle inevitable bottlenecks? Well, let me just say that my let me just say my good friend uh, David Sirota was a co-writer of uh, Don't Look Up, and uh, he was honored with an Oscar. He was honored with an Oscar nomination for that. So uh, great movie! Uh, really, really excited for him. Um, yeah, I mean, globalization is certainly you know kind of kind of the main part of this, and also this this philosophy that the only reason businesses exist is to make money for their shareholders which is a, a fairly new proposition. People think that that's sort of some iron law, but we used to have stakeholder capitalism in this country where corporations were thinking about how to, how to you know, produce best for not only their shareholders, but for workers, for communities, and for the business at large to, to improve the business and, 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 and improve society through that. Uh, and we got away from that. And we, we, we instead, uh, uh, it said that that the only reason that a business exists is to make money, right. and uh, and and because of that, that business has to chase low cost labor all around the world. I mean, Jack Welch, the former mm -hmm. uh, CEO of General Electric, famously said that you know ideally I would put all of my factories on a barge and I just move from country to country, and whatever country gave me the best deal. Uh, in terms of low cost labor, no environmental regulations, et cetera, that's where I would stash my barge. Um, that was the philosophy, the guiding philosophy of the last 50 years or so uh, in, in terms of business. And, uh, you know, that created this system where we have these long supply chains uh, that are very centralized because you find the country with the, 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 the best uh, uh, the worst environmental record, the, the, the cheapest labor, and you put all your factories there. And then something happens in that country and you can't get your goods out. And that's, that's essentially uh, what happened over the last couple of years. Yeah, pretty, uh, in a way, it could be easy to see. And, you know, the, the, the easiest, most simple way to do that, that, that certainly existed a lot in history, is slavery. What the hell? You know, it's it's there at the base, and uh, you know, then it, it's just all about profits. And uh, and those of us who uh, buy health insurance know they're not there for health; they're there for profits. Period. End of story. Anything cheaper, and it doesn't create the best uh, products for people. And we've been dealing with it for so long. And as I understand it, and I may be wrong, the last time America faced real shortages complete with bread lines, President Roosevelt made bold decisions to invest in things like infrastructure to create uh, more jobs, and it worked. You write that 
will continue to shoulder the dangers of the next supply shock, the next critical shortage, the next breadline, unless we decide to take on the corporate interests that got us here and build a system that actually works for all of us. That, that's a uh, big ask. Is there any evidence that that's starting to happen, that more Americans are open enough to look beyond the usual easy explanations? Any evidence? Well, it's, it's definitely a tall order. Uh, but I go back to those five things that I mentioned before, globalization, monopolization, rule by Wall Street, financialization, deregulation, and just-in-time logistics. And are we making progress on those five key things? Well, in some ways we are. Uh, uh, we've seen more reshoring of production, bringing it back to the United States. Uh, Intel opened a, a, a plant, semiconductor plant in Ohio recently. Uh, uh, TSMC opened one in Arizona. Um, I believe it might in Texas. No, Samsung was the plant in Texas. Uh, we're probably going to reshore about 250,000 jobs this year and maybe more in the years to come. This is going to take time to get these critical goods back into the United States, but I do believe that that's starting to happen. Um, on monopolization, we have a group now at the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission that is really committed to uh, an aggressive competition policy, uh, blocking mergers that are anti-competitive and uh, making progress on that front. Um, as far as just-in-time logistics, a lot of business executives are realizing what the pandemic did and uh, thinking that instead of just-in-time, we have to think about just-in-case and build in some reserves. Right now, we're seeing a scramble for warehouse space. That's one of the pieces in this special issue that we wrote about. Uh, warehouse space is now 96% uh, at capacity. And uh, the uh, one real estate company says that we're going to need a billion more square feet of warehouses uh, over the next uh, three years to deal with demand. Um, wow. Another another thing is investment. I mean, one of the reasons that we've seen these bottlenecks is that our ports are decrepit. They're just not built to deal with increases in demand. Well, the bipartisan infrastructure bill got $18 billion for ports. So that might be put to good use as well. Um, so there are some decent signs, even on regulation. Uh, there's a piece, a, a piece of legislation called the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, which would re-regulate this ocean shipping cartel that has seen their profits rise by tenfold hmm. over the past year. It got 364 votes in the House. So that's Democrats and Republicans coming together and saying, yeah, we need to get a handle on this on behalf of importers and exporters in this country. Um, so uh, there are good signs out there. I don't want to make the, this like, you know, it, it took a long time to get here hmm. and it's going to take a long time to get to get back to a more safe and secure system. But I do think we're moving in that direction. Two questions. What was the Ocean Shipping what again, the, the title of that? The Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2021. It was passed last year in the House. Uh, it's now pending in the Senate. Um, there's another big bill called the Competes Act that passed the House, and a version of it passed the Senate. 
So, uh, and that includes uh, uh, subsidized uh, subsidies for bringing semiconductor uh, plants back to the United States. It includes a lot of supply chain monitoring. So we actually know where the problems are before they arise. Um, so uh, there, there's some decent stuff happening. I do think that, that those two bills will eventually get signed by the president. And so we, we, we could see some improvements here. Well, one big problem that I have certainly found is that, uh, you know, a nation of consumers, we want it right now. Whatever it is, we want it right yeah. now. We don't have patience for anything at all. And it doesn't work that way. Cap, you know, democracy takes a long time, and people forget that. Auto you know, an autocracy is a heck of a lot more efficient, and some people actually want that which amazes me, uh, and the Republican Party. I, I never would have guessed. Anyway, I read that the Democrats in the Senate are proposing a gas tax holiday yeah. to address inflation. That would cut the price of gasoline at the pump by about 18 cents a gallon. Your comments. Uh, we actually have a piece about this today uh, at prospect.org about the federal gas tax. Uh, 18 cents a gallon is about 5% of the nationwide price. And if you do reduce it, you're probably going to encourage more consumption of gas. And if you have more demand for gas, you're probably going to raise the price by more than 5%. So, <laughs> so this is kind of a vicious circle here. Uh, I don't know that there's a short-term answer to gas prices outside of more production, and that's a climate uh, yeah, risk. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, the, the real long-term solution to that is to get us off the addiction to oil, right? Yeah. Get us off of the addiction to fossil fuels, move things to electric, uh, 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 increase renewable uh, energy deployment, and, and invest in the green transition. That's really the long-term answer here. And, and the petroleum industry is not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't want to do that, but uh, businesses who are getting fleeced by, by high energy costs do want to do that. So, ah, good you know, maybe, maybe there is a, a, a way to split them off, uh, big oil. And uh, uh, it's, it's going to be difficult because uh, every time you try to move away from fossil fuels, the price goes up and politicians get skittish and say, yeah. let's, Let's get more fossil fuels. Uh, let's get more fossil fuel consumption. So it's 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 a real dilemma, I think, uh, going forward in the short term for and, the green transition. Yeah, and the simplistic explanation people have been saying: Biden gas tax. I mean, the gas yeah. prices are too high, and pff, that's where it's left. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're speaking with executive editor David Dayen of the American Prospect magazine. They have a new issue uh, dedicated to this issue, how we broke the supply chain and perhaps what we can actually do about it. Mm -hmm. uh, you explain that the roots of the supply shock lie in a basic bargain made between government and big business on behalf of the American people, but without their consent. Right. So many things have gotten this country into trouble without popular consent. I think of a few wars, shall we say? Sure. <laughs> that doesn't sound particularly democratic. Does this structure not encourage destabilization of the American workforce by being chained to maximizing profits for the few, using globalization in a race to the bottom in terms of labor and environmental costs? 
I mean, certainly. Uh, uh, it, I mean, the, the kind of the, the interesting thing here is that there was this race to the bottom, particularly on environmental standards. And so we, we cited all these factories in, in countries that didn't really care about, about uh, pollution and, and, and the increase in, in fossil fuel consumption and production. And now we're having all these extreme weather events that are, that are preventing, I mean, for example, the Yangtze River flooding uh, last year was a, a major supply disruption. Uh, the heat wave that we saw in China led to an energy crunch, which shut down a bunch of factories. So there's an irony there that these, this is the country that allowed uh, a lot of these hydrocarbons and, uh, and, and, and greenhouse gas emissions to float into the atmosphere. And then the, the byproduct of that, which is these, these various weather events, uh, is, 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 you know, preventing the 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 supply to move into the country was the whole point right so uh that that i see as a a kind of a brutal irony but yeah i mean it's this bargain that was made was that you don't need uh, an industrial base in the united states Mm. you don't need you know we're we're, going to give you all service sector jobs uh, you're, you're, you're going to have a lower, st- you're going to make less money. You're going to have stagnant wages. Uh, but here's what we're going to give to you. We're going to give you low prices because we're going to give you creep, cheap, cheap stuff from, from China and, uh, and you'll have the low prices. So then with the supply disruption, what happened? All the harms remained, uh, the, the abandoning of industrial bases and, and, and communities across the country, the low wage jobs, et cetera. But then we lost the low prices, right? <laughs> like it, it, the system was not even stable enough to keep the low prices flowing. So uh, I, I think at that point you say we need a better bargain. And that bargain has to be rooted uh, not only in uh, in in good jobs for people, mm-hmm. but also in in more stability for our economy. And these hollowed out towns, the the, the people in the lower density populated areas, uh, they've seen their economy just wiped out, and they get scared and they want instant solutions. And guess who they voted for? Because uh, it's simple. People like simple things. And we we have to address that. We can't just ignore them and leave them to the Trump-publicans. We just, yeah, it doesn't work. Um, and as you say, I mean, this has been going on for a while. The dynamic is hardly new. You say that the Carter administration deregulated yeah. trucking and rails. What were the That's effects right. of that that we still feel? Oh, well, we have entire pieces on, on both of those matters. There's a piece on trucking and a piece on rail. Uh, uh, by the way, you can, you can reach all of these pieces in our special issue at prospect.org slash supply chain, all one word. So prospect.org slash supply chain. But uh, yes, in, in the late 1970s, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter got on board with, with deregulating these industries, uh, uh, in in conjunction, oddly enough, with Ted Kennedy, who was his rival in the 1980 right. Democratic primary, mm-hmm. uh, but Kennedy uh, helped deregulate rail, trucking, airlines, um, and the idea was that this would unleash 
innovation, unleash competition, and allow uh, 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 you know a, a, a real uh, uh, an improvement in efficiency. Uh, it didn't work out that way. Uh, the deregulation of trucking ended the situation where the Teamsters had a master freight agreement with all the major trucking companies, uh, making it uh, a decent-paying job. And the the standards of for for labor in the trucking industry fell dramatically, and it uh, drove a lot of people out of the business. And as a result, uh, we we don't see uh, the surge capacity necessary when demand increases for to get more trucks on the road. Uh, with rail, it was kind of the same thing before. It actually led to mass consolidation. Number one. Before deregulation of rail, there were 40 class one railroads. Now there are seven, and really there are four in the United States, two that handle the eastern half of the country and two that handle the western half. And uh, so there's not as much choice. And then, uh, and and a lot of this is driven by Wall Street investors, Mm -hmm. they've introduced this thing called precision scheduled railroading. And what that means really is cut labor, cut capacity, only ship the things that are very uh, lucrative for the railroad. And, uh, and, and once much like trucking, it means that there's no surge capacity. So when demand increases, uh, the rail companies just can't handle it. They, they, they're, they're completely overloaded. And uh, so both of these were byproducts of deregulation. Hmm. And uh, and and it it was a bipartisan issue uh, that that starts with Carter, certainly uh, expands, if anything, through Reagan and continues through Clinton. The first Ocean Shipping Reform Act that deregulated the ocean shipping companies was in 1998 under Clinton. So, uh, uh, you know, this was this stemmed from a philosophy that that really said that that the American workers had it too good. I mean, Carter's Carter's top economic advisor, a guy named Alfred Kahn, he very famously said, I want the Teamsters to be worse off. He thought that that there was this consumer movement that said that, you know, we can get lower prices if we just break the back of labor in this country. And uh, and and it worked until it didn't. Right. I mean, we got lower prices until then we didn't. And uh, we had nothing to fall back on in terms of good jobs. And now one hears about uh, driverless vehicles and the. uh, the uh, I don't know which companies are all uh, drooling over the idea of having uh, trucking with no truck drivers, and uh, <laughs> that's you know you go to the grocery store these days and it's progress to have no checkout. You know you just check out yourself, eliminating jobs, eliminating jobs. All well, the it's time. it's free labor is what it is. It's it's, <laughs> it's 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 getting the customers to do the work of the clerks. Right. I'm moving the, 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 across the scanner and whatnot. Now, as far as the uh, automated and electric cars and artificial intelligence, we've been hearing about this for years and years and years. This is a day away, a week away, a month away, and it never really gets there. Uh, and, and now we're talking about a trucking shortage. Whereas, uh, you know, not too long ago, we were talking about we were going to have this glut of millions of truckers with no jobs anymore. So, uh, things things change quickly. Things shift very quickly, and uh, uh, I, I I would 
pump the brakes on the idea that we're going to have mass automation uh, uh, put everybody out of work. And by the way, uh, automation should be seen as as a good thing if it's a labor saving device and it, sure. it, it increases our our productivity. I mean, that's good for an economy. The question is who 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 owns the robots, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, who benefits? Who benefits from automation? Is it going to be us workers who get more leisure time and and uh, a lower work week because we're more productive, or is it going to be the owners? Uh, so so that's the real the real question with automation for me. And the thing is, there's a lot more of us than them. There's a lot more workers and people in lower income than the hyper-rich who keep buying more and more expensive yachts and shooting themselves up into space, which is so bizarre to me. And yet, I do think, I wonder about, you know, a lot of the, the Trump people uh, don't like globalization. I'm not crazy about it. You know, maybe there's some good aspects of it. I don't know, but I wonder how we can adjust globalization to make well, it work for us, or is it too late? I don't think we're going to end globalization. Right. I think we're 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 going to have trade, a global trade system. Of course, uh, we we need to make sure that that global trading system uh, uplifts workers all around the world, so that companies can't race to the bottom. Uh, and we do need to, I think, make sure that critical goods are produced in this country. And that's not just sort of electronics and weaponry and things like that, but, but, but things like for public health. I mean, what did we see in the pandemic that all of a sudden most of the PPE was coming from China and when they shut down, suddenly we didn't have any, we had workers uh, in, in healthcare facilities and in, in trash bags uh, in, instead of, instead of scrubs because they couldn't get the PPE personal protective equipment over right. from from overseas. Uh, so I, I think we need to say that critical goods are a priority and we need to make them or at least stockpile them in this country so that we're not caught short. And uh, that bill that I mentioned before, the Competes Act, has actually $45 billion to uh, reshore or restockpile critical goods in the United States. So I think there's a balance here to be struck. I think we should have stronger labor environmental standards mm -hmm. in all global trade agreements, but I think also uh, we need to we need to bring some some manufacturing back up. It does seem that uh, that would be a good thing to do and a very popular thing to do and and would uh, make us stronger. And again, it seems like in many ways, the essence of the problem is who makes the decisions? This is a republic right now, government of the people. It's supposed to serve everybody. Franklin Roosevelt uh, talked about uh, uh, that the economy, uh, capitalism was good, but it must serve the common good. It ain't doing that now. It is just not not doing that. And if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a very uh, important, oftentimes confusing aspect, the, uh, the supply chain break. Our guest is uh, David Dayen, who is uh, executive editor of the American Prospect magazine, and they have a whole new issue uh, about it. Uh, and... You know, there, without public participation, I mean, all these wars, you know, if the public had to vote for it, I don't think they'd happen. I mean, that's why they know. And that's why our founders put it in the Constitution that it has to be done 
only with the uh, uh, approval of Congress, and yet it doesn't. They get around for this. Uh, and, and I find this curious. You say that none of the private players involved with the supply chain has any incentive to fix it. Sounds rather <laughs> doom and gloomish. <laughs> well, uh, that, this is what I've been talking about. The shipping companies are making record profits right now. The rail companies, despite uh, being capacity stretched, are making record profits right now. Um, uh, there, there's, there's no Why would a shipping company say, uh, "Okay, I'm going to fix this supply chain problem. We'll go back to the low profits that we had before the chaos began." I mean, there's, there's no, there's no incentive, and and that's why government has to step in because uh, left to their own devices, corporations will work in their own self-interest and that self-interest may not be the public interest. Yeah. And so you have to have a, a, a public interest facing uh, regulator, a, a, a democratic representative of the people coming in and structuring these markets so that they work for people. And that's what we're missing right now. Yeah, and, and certainly the, the phrase price gouging has been bubbling up lately. People have sure. wondered, you know, is there something going on that's not price gouging or maybe price gouging is very real and they're taking advantages of it. Is this accurate? And as it increases in acceptance, one might assume that the politicians might take notice. Are they, is that beginning to be addressed? The price gouging? I would think it'd be popular. <laughs> you would think, I mean, there was a story in the Washington Post uh, earlier this week about how there's a debate inside the Biden administration on how far to go to talk about corporate price gouging. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like there's been a little bit of talk in certain discrete industries that have a lot of market power, things like the meat industry, for example, a lot of the increase in uh, prices that we've seen in grocery stores is really around meat around beef and pork and chicken and those industries are very concentrated meat processing uh, uh i think it's something like four companies controlling something anywhere between 70 to 85 percent of of the of the production and uh they've been increasing their profits uh well beyond their increased input costs and uh, Biden has been talking about that and threatening new regulations on that. And interestingly, uh, if you look at the, uh, uh, the inflation statistics for December, meat prices started to fall mm -hmm. after a, about a year of increases. So what that says to me is that, yeah, there, there kind of is a bully pulpit. And if the Biden administration were more aggressive, in talking about this, they could they could actually moderate these prices to a certain degree, especially if they back it up with aggressive action to say we're going to, you know, break up these companies or we're going to prosecute price gouging and price fixing uh, uh, to a greater degree. So um, uh, I'm I'm a little surprised that there's even a debate. I mean, uh, if you look at if you look at the polling, I think I think people intuitively understand that pricing is something that corporations do and uh, that, that if they are seeing higher prices at the gas station, at the grocery store, they kind of know who to blame intuitively, right? Yes. Uh, and so uh, you, you would think that there would be more, uh, more outcry about this, particularly from uh, the administration. 
And all politicians care more than anything about getting reelected. And, you know, the Biden administration, as you say, inherited a half century of bad policy, and they need to summon the fortitude to reverse it. They've gotten started a little bit. Do, do tell us about their start. You've mentioned a few things. Uh, well, um, as, I've, as I've mentioned, uh, there is uh, there are these two bills, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, uh-huh. and there's also the Competes Act on the Senate side is called the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. Uh, th- those are in process, and I, I would expect action on those sometime in the spring. Um, the, the Biden administration has uh, uh, done some some interesting things around investment in particularly the ports, which are really uh-huh. very clogged right now. Yes. Um, one thing that they did in the port of Savannah is that they created what they call a pop up container yard. Because one of the problems was just space. Uh-huh. They had all these imports coming in. They come in on these container ships, these right. giant ships. Huge. <clears throat> And uh, there's nowhere to put the containers. <laughs> there's, you know, you have to uh, put them somewhere to unload them, get them onto trucks, get them loaded onto to rail cars, uh, and and get them on their way. And so they built this extra yard to unload the containers, get them away from the port, so you can unload more ships. And that brought down the backlog of ships waiting off the coast of Savannah from thirty to two. Wow. And this was funded by the White House, uh, and and it's part of their you know larger investment strategy, which uh, they they do have a, a decent amount of money for ports uh, in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, we have not seen the same kind of uh, uh, action at LA and Long Beach, which is where forty percent of all mm. U.S. seaborne imports come in. And one of the problems is that there isn't any space, right? There, there. L.A. and Long Beach are, you know, these are dense areas, and there, there are people living uh, right off of the the, oh. the the port area. So it's it's a little more difficult to see what you can do there. Um, uh, you know, one of the problems is that these ships have gone gotten so much bigger and yes. bigger and bigger that they can only be unloaded at certain ports in the United States. And one of the things that you could do is dredge these ports, uh, inc- expand these ports so that more ports can accept these goods. And if you did that, then you could maybe relieve pressure off the few ports that can handle these mega container ships right now, like L.A. and Long Beach, like Savannah, like New York and New Jersey. Well, I'll speak up for this area. There's the uh, Port of Portsmouth in New Hampshire, which uh, could use expansion. It's kind of small mm-hmm. now, and it would be very, very good for the economy. I This show is titled Keeping Democracy Alive, and I've, I've long believed that, that more real economic democracy will create a more just world, a more sustainable world. You seem to agree, saying we, the people, didn't make these choices, but together... All of us can command change, end of quote. The populist populist movement that the far right has thus far latched onto, I believe, connects with this impulse. Do you see any elected officials getting this, especially with this uh, uh, incentive? Well, uh, they'd better. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, think about what we have seen since, I would say, 2006. So in 2006, Republicans, uh, uh, you know, we had Katrina, we had Iraq, and 
uh, Republicans lose the House and Senate. Democrats sweep in on a sweeping uh, realignment of politics. In 2008, after the financial crisis, the same thing happens. In 2010, the public thinks Democrats didn't get anything done. They sweep Republicans back in. Now you do it. Uh, In 2014, same thing. They sweep Republicans back in. Uh, uh, then Republicans get in charge. Nothing happens in 2018. They sweep Democrats back in. Uh, and, and now we're, we're seeing in 2022, a looming sweep of Republicans back in again. The, the, the public is whipsawing back and forth between Democrats and Republicans and not getting answers, not getting results that they want out of their politics. And uh, I believe that that is because that the, the politicians aren't answering to the real needs of the American people, but answering to the needs of, uh, uh, you know, corporate interests or, or, or their donors or what have you. Um, it's just clear to me that the, the, the political party that actually understands, not just understands what the American people want and need, but actually acts to get that done is is going to you know be a, a realigning force in our politics for for decades to come, and so yeah, uh, should should uh, politicians listen to this this desire and, and this need from the people? Yeah, absolutely. I would think it would be in their interest. I mean, it's taken a risk for them to to uh, anger their uh, you know concentrated supply of money, but. Again, it's about votes. Money uh, is there to get votes. And if you can get votes otherwise, that works for them. Very interesting stuff. Very revealing. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, explaining this complicated and extremely important issue. David Dayan, who is uh, executive editor of American Prospect magazine. And the whole uh, spiel is at prospect.org forward slash supply chain. Thank you so much for being with us today. Let's hope. All right, Bert. Thank you very much. Be well. You too. When the supermarkets run out of food, when the gas stops flowing, tell me where will you turn? Where will you go? When the roads are overtaken by thieves, when the rich live in cocoons, tell me what's your plan? Where will you go? We can be. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Twice a week, every week, subscribe. Don't miss a single one on the website, Apple Podcast, or Stitcher.